Let's uh, turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 13. We're entering a new chapter uh, today with fascinating current events going on. And I wonder, I don't probably need to wonder, but uh, some of the emotions we've had as we see the videos that have come out of Israel and um, what the terrorists have been doing and making videos of it and, and apparently uh, proud of it or, or whatever. And I wonder what our uh, thoughts are about that sort of thing because we're going to encounter something very similar as we open the 13th uh, chapter here. But uh, getting back to the context that we've, we've gotten through the very long 59 verse chapter 12 and, and we saw the stridency of that. Uh, and indeed, it's, it's been there from the beginning, but uh, it becomes clearer as Jesus moves through uh, his journey to Jerusalem and to a cross and to his death. And he's, he's training these disciples, which means he's training you and me as we go through these, uh, these passages. But at the end of, of chapter 12, interestingly enough, uh, Jesus accuses the Israelites of being hypocrites. He said, you hypocrites, why can't you, why won't you interpret the present times? Judge for yourselves what is right. That's how chapter 12 ended. And you remember at the end of chapter 11, uh, we saw the, the uh, event at the Pharisee's house when Jesus uh, has uh, read them the riot act because they, the religious leaders, could not interpret the time or would not interpret the times. And he began his um, his speaking in chapter 12 by, by telling these disciples, uh, i.e. you and me, don't be a hypocrite. And you remember he's, he's not looking at the standard definition of that. He's looking at, at people who are perfectly satisfied with being the wrong thing. And this is going to continue with us in a big way, frankly, a more dramatic way as we enter this 13th chapter. We're only going to do the first nine verses. Um, Jesus is going to, to become very, very personal here. Remember last week, we looked a couple of times at Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, and alluding to the fact that the word that's referred there uh, is not only the book, it's not only scripture, but more importantly, it is the word Jesus Christ himself who is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is, that is a, um, at the very least, that is a humbling passage to know that we can never ever hide from God. Every single thought, every intention we have, even if we have gone to great lengths to conceal intentions from ourselves, which we all do on a routine basis, it doesn't fool Jesus. Uh, so he is very, very aware of everything that's, that's going on. Now with that lead in, we're going to begin in the first three verses of chapter 13, it says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, an interesting description of an, of an event here that we know nothing else about in, in scripture, but apparently Pontius Pilate has been a party to, if not the instigator of, and commanding behind an event which took some Galileans' lives and somehow or other blood, the blood from the dead Palestinians got mingled with their sacrifices. And, and again, it's difficult to read that without thinking about the atrocities that we're seeing where babies' uh, heads are cut off, uh, babies are placed in ovens alive. Uh, I think that uh, when Hamas does that, perhaps they're alluding back to Auschwitz and, and um, the ultimate uh, atrocity of the Holocaust. But um, it's interesting, a man named Art Lindsley, who's written uh, on Luke, it comes to this particular three-verse passage and he says, quote, it would be as if terrorists came into a church, shot worshipers doing communion, and then mingled their blood with the communion wine. A poignant moment since we have just had communion and we'll have it again in an hour or so. Uh, but you can imagine that kind of event. It, perhaps uh, 10, 20 years ago, we, we would have difficulty imagining such an event, but no longer. This world has revealed, uh, as it always manages to do, the depth of total depravity. It, is, it has been amazing to me over the decades to see unbelievers go to total depravity as one of their keystone arguments for not wanting to be Christian, not wanting to believe the scriptures. And how in the world can you live in this world we're in and not think that every human being is a totally depraved person? Uh, we don't like thinking of ourselves that way, but I'm sorry the scriptures describe us that way, and that is indeed uh, who we are and what we are. Some of the depravity will go in different directions, but at the base of it is sin, and sin will lead us to hell without the saving blood of Jesus Christ. But the bottom line here in these three verses, people have been killed, their blood used to demean. Similar to today's uh, stuff we see, but the reaction of most people, and it continues today, is to ask a couple of questions. Who is to blame for this? Why did God allow this? And what did the victims do to deserve it? Now, that third question is the question that we see throughout Scripture. Remember Job's friends. When all the incredible calamities are caving in on this man Job, all of his friends say, I wonder what he did to deserve this. And it is, uh, I've heard people say that of Israel. Uh, the people in Israel are interlopers. Uh, how dare they come in? Uh, we see hundreds of thousands of people marching around the world saying, free Palestine, all these kinds of things. Uh, what they're really saying is the Israelites deserve this. Uh, it's a common response, but it's completely wrong. And Jesus is going to lead us uh, to a better question. He's, Jesus in these three uh, verses, especially the third verse, looked at that verse again. Uh, he said, you think that these Galileans were worse, this is in verse two, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. Verse three, unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. Now, what Jesus is saying is, yes, that was, that was an atrocity that happened to these Galileans. But the bottom line is they died. And the concern everyone has always is about dying. We're all going to die. And what Jesus says is there's, there's um, these questions that you have ruminating in your hearts and minds are the wrong questions. He says, I'll give you the correct uh, question. Anytime something like this is happening, the question, better question uh, for the Christian is, do I have a right relationship with God? The unspoken truth behind that being, this could have happened to me too. Uh, this, whether regardless of the atrocity or any other means of death, it, it can be an accident, it can be uh, whatever. Uh, the important question, according to Jesus, do you have a right relationship with God? And then at the end of verse three, he's going to repeat this again in these nine verses. He says this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those words are going to be repeated for us in a couple of verses. Pride, of course, uh, is at the bottom of a lot of this. Now, when we get to verses four and five, Jesus says, here's another, uh, not an atrocity. This is an accident, if you will. Verses four and five of, of this chapter, he says, or those 18 on, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offended than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus keeps going back again and again and again uh, to the one completely critical question, and that is, have we repented of our sin? In other words, do we have a right relationship uh, to God? Now, there's an interesting word here in the English translations in verse four, the word offenders. Uh, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The Greek behind that word offender is debtor. In other words, do you think they owed God more than you owe God? It's a fascinating uh, perspective that Jesus brings out. Uh, Oh God, for what? Oh God, for our sinfulness. Do we owe God something uh, any more than, than the next person? And Jesus is saying, no, uh, we're all on the same line. We're all on the same playing field. We are all totally depraved, sinful people. And unless we have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repent of our sins, then we are no better than at death. We're going to be all in the same basket, which goes to hell. And that's why he has that fifth verse where he reiterates this notion. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now this gives us an opportunity to look at a little segue here. Uh, over um, a lot of, of different weeks, we've talked about faith. And I always talk about that little uh, cat, K-A-T. Uh, let me broaden the picture just a bit, and I'm, I know I'm being in the way of everything here, but I'll try not to. Uh, <clears throat> these eight categories here are, are called the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. What happens to a person to bring them 
from an unrepentant, hell-bound sinner to a saved Christian who is heaven-bound. Well, these eight steps are theologians' attempts to explain what happens, and it happens to every Christian. Now, the problem of when you try to break something down to study it, uh, you, you put them in eight steps here, but understand all of this can be compressed. Think of this as an accordion that can, that can move. It will move differently with every individual, and it can be very compressed. And the best illustration I know of compression in this regard is the thief on the cross. Uh, I don't know what that man's perspective was before he was nailed to that cross, but it doesn't appear that he was uh, a believer until he was adjacent to the God of the universe, to Jesus himself, hanging on an adjacent cross. When he becomes effectually called, you remember that there are two thieves up there, but on either side of Jesus, and one of them just gets more hard-hearted, more pride-bound, more hell-bound, as the other thief on the other side of Jesus is interacting with him. But the good guy, the guy who ends up in heaven that day in paradise, quoting Jesus, is the one who is effectually called. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Everybody on planet Earth is called. That's what you read about in Romans 1, from verse 18 through verse 32. You read about the, the calling. And Paul says, everybody can look and you can see that the sun comes up at the same time and it sets and it's all of this, all of these things that we observe in the universe uh, are so dramatically in tune and predictable that it cannot be just an accident. It cannot be an evolutionary process that just happened to work out this way. Um, in Romans 1, Paul even says, in fact, you, you are held responsible uh, for just that amount of calling. Uh, it's, it's striking, actually, the depth uh, that Paul takes that in Romans 1. Let me just read you a couple of, of his uh, his conclusions here, beginning in the 18th verse. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, to, to be unrighteous, you've got to suppress something that you know. You've got to volitionally deny it. You've got to, to uh, see it and run from it. He goes on there, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And that passage in Romans 1 continues from that point. That's a general calling. Everybody on the planet is, is held responsible for doing something with that general calling. But until the Holy Spirit opens our heart to the gospel, we are, as Paul says in Ephesians, dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not just sick. 
Our sin it doesn't make us sick. It's something we, we can cure ourselves of. It doesn't make us sick. It doesn't, we're not gimpy. We're dead. In the ground, dead, stone, cannot respond until something happens. So this effectual call morphs into this second step, regeneration. That's the process that you read about in, in the chapter 36-37 of Ezekiel where God says, I'm going to go in and I'm going to pull that heart of stone out of you. That heart of stone that is so set against me that is completely uh, ignoring and suppressing everything you've known about me. I'm going to take that heart and, and get rid of it and replace it with a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh is then going to become effectual. It's going to make you, all of a sudden you're going to see, goodness, why haven't I seen this before? What? Uh, you're going to, maybe you've gone to church for uh, 40 years and you, you, it's just because someone uh, forced you to or you thought it was a thing to do. But then all of a sudden, when that calling becomes effectual, you're going to start hearing Jesus. You're going to start hearing the gospel. You're going to start understanding and you're going to start developing a zeal for scripture. Uh, that's what regeneration is. It makes me capable of responding and it makes that call effectual in my life. When the Holy Spirit wants me to be a believer, I will become a believer and no one will escape his grip. Now that leads to this next one. And you notice something unique out of all the eight steps. This is the only one uh, that has a two-part sequence to it. Faith, repentance. Uh, we've talked a lot about faith, as I mentioned, the cat, knowledge, ascent, trust. Uh, but there's no such thing as legitimate Christian faith that isn't penitent, that isn't aware of sinfulness and responsive to sinfulness. And the same token, there's no such thing as penance that isn't part of a faith-based turning. That's why you can never, ever separate. People will get into any amount of uh, different types of trouble when they try to see these as two separate things. Uh, faith cannot be surfaced. We've talked over and over and over again with this cat. I've got to have knowledge. Somebody has to tell me about Jesus or I've got to hear about him or, or some way or other, whether it's a sermon or, or a book or whatever. Then I've got to come to a point where I assent to it. I, I, I've examined it. And I think, yes, this is where I want to be. I assent to it. But we keep saying over and over again, these two do nothing unless you get to the third part. Trust, conviction, action, change, determination. I've got to put this into play in my own heart or these two are meaningless. Satan knows more about Jesus than any of us ever will. Uh, and he knows it's, it's absolutely certain and true what he knows about Jesus but he's not about to get to this. The Christian has to be in all three of them. Now, what is involved in the knowledge of faith that we assent to, that we believe is true? Part of it is this second term, repentance. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is going to these terrible events in history and he's saying, unless you repent, you will perish. Well, what does that involve? Repentance is wrapped up here in this, in this trusting the three aspects, generally speaking, of repentance, confession, contrition, and change. Confession is knowing that I'm not only a sinner, but I know that I've sinned against God, and I come and I confess that sin to God. 
Contrition is the emotional aspect. Confession is the intellectual. Contrition is the emotional aspect of it. I, I am not only do I know that I'm a sinner and know that I have sinned against God, but I am deeply, deeply traumatized by it. I am, I am hurt. Uh, not because I don't want my neighbors to know that I've done this or done that or failed to do this, failed to do that, but because I know that what I've done, I've done against God. And if you want to read somebody in that boat, read Romans 7, where Paul, the end of, end of Romans 7, where Paul is going through his own emotive response to his own sinfulness and arrives at the conclusion that I am a wretched man. Who will save me? He winds up at uh, Jesus, of course. And then the third part, just like in faith, there has to be change. Has, this is the volitional aspect of repentance. I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner, understand and be, be decimated by the fact, hurt personally that I am a sinner against God, and then I've got to try to change. Now, are any of us going to ever do this successfully 100%? No, we're not. We're going to die sinners, but we're going to die saved sinners. But this volitional part of it uh, is just as important. And again, you begin to see the similarities and why you don't ever separate faith and repentance. They're very similar. Uh, I've got to have knowledge of my sin. I've got to say, yes, this is indeed not only sin, but it's sin against the holy God whose, whose son shed his blood for me. And then I've got to, to take action on it. And the action of repentance is a volitional effort to change. Now let me read what the Westminster Confession has a wonderful definition. Chapter 15 of the Westminster Confession, which is entitled Repentance Unto Life. I'll just read the first two paragraphs. Uh, number one, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. Um, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. See how they're already combining repentance and faith. Every minister is called upon, every Christian is called upon uh, to, to speak, teach, act, understand, and, and uh, encourage in their own hearts and the hearts of others, not only faith in Christ, but also repentance. It cannot be separated. Here is paragraph two. By it, that is by repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger. Now, there's a lot of people who, who, who know they mess up. They think, uh-oh, uh, this will get me in trouble. Uh, no, no, it goes more than that. It's, it's out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. In other words, my sin, uh, as I become aware of it, through this repenting process, I, I see it as uh, filthy and odious in the sight of God. That's what drives me. And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Uh, it's a wonderful definition of, of repentance. Uh, justification, uh, just to quickly complete this process, justification is, is a one-time act. It's always called forensic, if you read in the 
theology, but meaning it's judicial. It's a declaration. Think of God as judge, and he says, innocent. He looks at you when you when you have faith, when he's given you a new heart, you begin to hear the gospel, you have this faith, you realize, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner because God has sent his son to die for me, therefore I'm confessing my sin, I'm, I'm sorry for them, and I will seek to do better and change from my sinful ways. God justifies you one time, he declares you just, righteous, rather than wrathful, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 13. He then adopts you into his family. Now, the Reformed uh, faith is the only one that puts a lot of emphasis on that. I think that's, that's unfortunate and extreme. <clears throat> the Westminster Confession, for instance, is the only Reformed creed that has a separate chapter on adoption. Why is that important? It's, it's again, in Romans, you'll read about adoption. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's the difference in someone who has a God who is who is sort of unknown, distant, way up there. You know, you hear people talk about all the time the man up there. Uh, the Christian is adopted. God does not just save his children; He then brings his sons and daughters whom He saves and embraces them into His family. We are adopted into the family of God, and privileges come with that that need to be taught and preached also, but rarely get enough uh, recognition. Sanctification, that's the process of becoming more holy. As I repent of my sin and seek to change, I will be increasingly sanctified. I will do it better. I, want, I will continue to fail, but the litmus test, John Owen used to talk about this all the time. Uh, the litmus test is if I look at my life today, and I look especially at my besetting sins, those things that, that uniquely seem to be uh, difficult hurdles for me to deal with, that I am aware that I fail in often. Uh, I should be able to look at my life today in those areas and all others and see that I'm better than I was five or 10 years ago. In other words, the slope of the graph is positive. Uh, it's gonna be jagged, it's, it's gonna be, uh, I'm gonna have times that I fall and fail, but I want the slope to be positive. I want overall to be better than I was uh, long ago. That's, that's this process of sanctification. Justification, a one-time act by God. Sanctification is every minute that you and I are going to live before we're in the ground. Uh, perseverance goes along with sanctification. The good news here is even when I fail, Jesus is holding me, and he's going to get me across the finish line. It's not, I'm not caught up in works righteousness where, oh my goodness, I need to question my salvation. Once I am saved, once I am regenerated, once he's given me faith, all of those are gifts from God, justified me, adopted me, sanctified me, then this perseverance is something I am called to do through thick and thin, but ultimately it is successful, not because of who I am, what I do or don't do, but what Jesus has done on the cross. And that leads finally to glorification. Um, now, back to Luke chapter 13. Um, I, I hope putting it all into a bigger picture will be helpful. I know it'll be helpful going, going forward some. This, Jesus then gives a little parable. A little four verse parable in six through nine. A very famous parable. J.C. Ryle said this was an unusually humbling parable. And uh, he found it... Um, soul searching, which indeed it is. Here's six through nine. And he told this parable. 
A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is uh, pretty straightforward. A parable, the owner of, uh, of the vineyard, of course, is God the Father. The vine dresser is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And you see our great high priest there interceding for us with the Father. The Father comes out, okay, uh, looks, looks pretty bleak here. This thing is never going to be, just, it's time to get, and, and Jesus said, well, you know, let me intercede for old Bob. I know he's a sinner. I know he's a grievous sinner, but uh, let's, let's keep, uh, keep going with this, with this guy. And uh, the fig tree, of course, are humans. All There's a sense in which it's all humans, believer and unbeliever. Again, because of common grace, everybody is going to be held accountable. Uh, there's no one who can go before God and say, well, it's not my fault. You didn't, you didn't talk to me about anything. Uh, so there's a sense in which it's everyone, but it's in particular, it's the church, it's believers uh, who is... Uh, portrayed as the fig tree. In verses six and seven, the tree has had time to be fruitful, but it didn't. Therefore, cut it down. It's using up resources, taking up space. <laughs> Thus, that uh, little word fruitfulness there, this where this, these whole nine verses are, are aiming. Verse eight, the vine dresser comes along and asks for an extension. Uh, he says he'll dig around it and put on manure, he says. Uh, now, what does that mean in your life and my life? It means that God may bring sickness into it. He may bring death into it as a means of moving. In the eyes of God, God is, God is, is, in, is an eternal God. We are eternal beings one way or another, either heaven or hell. God doesn't take the short focus on this planet and on life on this planet the way we do. It's all we, we know in terms of our perception and we tend to over-focus on it. Uh, so God may, might use sickness, he may use sadness, he may use trouble, he may bring any kind of thing into our lives to make us repentant, to show us our sinfulness, to make us aware of these things so that we might change and come to him. <coughs> Tornadoes. Earthquakes, death of friends. He'll fertilize us with his word. How does he, how does he come and, and uh, help us in that sense? He, he comes with, with this book, which is why it's so important not to, just to know it, but to continue in it and to study it and, um, and understand it further. This is the fertilization process toward faith and repentance. Uh, and the, the deeper you get, it, it, is, it is striking to me, if, if you study theology a long, long time, uh, when you look at great theologians, Calvin, the, the Calvins, the Owens, the, the Edwards, all those kinds of folks, uh, what you see from every single one of them, as their writings deepen and mature over the decades, they get more and more upfront about how worthless they feel how sinful they feel 
and how more glorious, therefore, Jesus is and the cross that saves us. It isn't me, and it won't ever be me. I'm not trying to, to prove anything to anybody. I'm just simply humbled by the grace that, um, that my Savior gives me. Um, all of that, all of that digging around and, and pruning and so forth, all of that is looking for signs of repentance. What would some signs look like? Here's from Terry Johnson, who's written a wonderful book on the parables, which includes this one. <clears throat> Terry lists these uh, points, signs that I am, am uh, repenting and, and growing in my faith. Well, number one, turning from my sin. That's obvious. Uh, that's the change that is expected. Uh, not just saying, well, that's just who I am. I've, I've had so many people uh, over time say, well, you know, I, yeah, that's good for you, but, but uh, you don't know the struggles I have. That's just who I am. Uh, well, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Um, again, I'm not, uh, the Bible never says we're going to conquer every sin. Indeed, we will not. Uh, but, uh, but it is my responsibility to it, seek to turn from it. Uh, loathing evil. The person who is a believer begins not only to see the glory of God and, and our Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit, but he begins to see uh, the existence of evil in the world. Uh, hungering for righteousness, wanting to be better, wanting to be uh, stronger in my faithfulness. Love for the word. Uh, difficult to find a Christian who does not find comfort in the word of God. Uh, wanting to hear it preached, seeking out churches like this one where the word is handled and uh, taught and preached with, with uh, total effort and love and um, insight. Uh, love for God's people. That to me is, um, I, I think I've mentioned before, pastors often get this question from people uh, who, will, who will come in and perhaps grieved over the recurrence of a sin in their life or whatever. And they'll say, how do I know I'm a Christian? I, I don't feel like I'm a believer at all. One of the answers that I always found helpful is, is uh, what happens when you get around God's people? Do you want to be here at church? Well, yeah, why? Well, because I enjoy being in the company of believers. That is a, that is a telltale sign of a believer, I it is it is amazing to me. You can you can run across, you can be in an airport, you can be anywhere on planet Earth, and run into a person you have never known, never seen, never knew existed from a totally different culture. But if they tell you they're a Christian, there is a bond there that is stronger than any blood bond I've got with any of my own family members. Now that's another sign of the presence of repentance and faith, a love for the worship of God. Uh, pursuing holiness, zeal for good works, characterized by love for others. Here's how John Bunyan put it, the guy that uh, gave us Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he, Bunyan has about a 15 page, <laughs> he's a Puritan, so he's got about a 15 page analysis of these four verses. And he says, uh, in, in that context, he says, thus, I say, deals the Lord Jesus often with the barren professor. The barren professor is Bunyan's terminology for the fig tree. And by that, what he means is the barren Christian. He digs about him. He smites one blow at his heart, another at his lusts, a third at his pleasures, a fourth at his comforts, 
another at his self-centeredness. Thus he digs about him. This is the way to take bad earth from the roots and to loosen his roots from the earth and by extension, attach them into the heaven with his savior. Um, interesting words. But the ninth verse, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The, there, the emphasis there is there will be a time when the tree dies. There will be a time when all of us, uh, he, again, Jesus opened with this, these two brief examples, one, a terrible atrocity that you would pray would never be a part uh, of anyone's life, uh, but they have been, they will be, they will always be, or accidental, a tower fell on somebody. Uh, you know, from time to time, we hear about uh, people dying in a car when a tree falls on them. Imagine what has to happen for a car moving uh, even if it's just moving 25 miles an hour for a tree to fall suddenly in exactly the timing that would kill the, the inhabitants of the car. There are accidents like that that happen all the time. And um, what he's saying here is, is something, one way or another, we all expect we're going to live uh, to be 128. Um, that doesn't always happen. Uh, so again, Jesus, the conclusion is what are you doing with your life. That's why, again, when he took on those two terrible examples of atrocity and accident, he said, no, no, don't worry about uh, who, who, had, who did what to whom and, and why were they sinful and all this kind of stuff. Look in your own heart and answer that question so it might not happen to you. Here's an interesting verse from John 15, verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Uh, that's um, John's uh, take on something very similar. Uh, but um, I want to conclude with this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As we go into Thanksgiving week, there are a lot of things to be thankful for, but none will ever get close to a savior that loved you so much. He died for you and he has told you about everything you need in this book. And he, he doesn't demand seminary education. He doesn't demand perfection in your life. He just says, come to me, open your heart, humble yourself before me, accept me by faith and you are my child forever. That is worthy of thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Uh, these uh, little vignettes that, uh, that Jesus will give us have great power. And we pray, Father, that we are those who know these things and who know that we are sinful people saved by the grace of God. God the Father in his plan of salvation, God the Son in his accomplishing that plan of salvation, the Holy Spirit in applying what the Son accomplished to my heart so that I can stand here today and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. I am unworthy. I am of the same wretch that Paul was, but thank the Lord for Jesus Christ who gives grace, mercy, peace, and salvation, eternal salvation, whether we be thieves hanging on a cross or anyone else in this world. When we have faith, 
We are God's children. Thank you for that mercy and that salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.